I think what's really important, Nick, is that as people are, you know, flying in this very luxurious plane that we call first world culture with their headphones on and their DVDs going full blast, um, there's something going on outside the window. And if watching that DVD and keeping those Bose headphones on is more important to people than actually start looking out the window Mm. and seeing the mountain range come into view, I mean, what's going to happen? Giving a damn is not about how you feel. It's about what you do with your body. Yep. And if you're not willing to do something hard to address the greatest challenge that humans have ever faced, we will get what we deserve. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm Nick LaPara, and I'm elated that you decided to join me for another conversation with another truly remarkable human being. Friends, have you heard of the company 7th Generation? Don't skip ahead. This is not an ad. I promise I'm bringing them up for a very specific purpose. Listen up. 7th Generation makes plant-based and environmentally friendly cleaning supplies, laundry detergent, feminine products, and a whole lot more. I'm sure you've seen their products, but what you may not know is that 7th Generation got their name and vision from the great law of the Iroquois, a concept that urges a current generation of humans to live and work for the benefit of the seventh generation in the future. Think about that. That's around 140 years down the line. So let me ask you, when you work, eat, rest, drink, create waste, and so much more, are you thinking about what's convenient for yourself in the moment? Or are you thinking about what you're doing in that moment and how it will affect the children of your children, of your their children? You get the picture. Well, I didn't interview anyone from 7th Generation, although I do love and use some of their products, nor did they pay me to bring up their company. I am going to talk today with my friend Jason Adkins about food, ecology, environmentalism. We discuss whether or not we have screwed up our planet to a point of no return yet. Jason is an urban farmer and he teaches about farming and ecology at Trevecca University in Nashville, Tennessee. This is one of those conversations that honestly scared the shit out of me a little bit, but also equally, if not more, gave me hope and excitement for giving a damn in the future. Okay, here's my conversation with Jason Adkins. Let's go. Jason Adkins, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. We are at your workplace. Where are we right now? Over at the library at Trevecca University. Trevecca University. This is part of your employment, I guess. Yes. Yeah. This is the quieter part of the campus. Okay. I'm normally around chickens. Yeah, you're uh, not in the library goats. usually. Right. Maybe you so wish you were. That but. makes for a less awesome sound experience. Um, or, or better. Or better, depending just, on what you're looking for. <laughs> I went for quiet today. I'm super excited to speak with you today because we're going to speak about a few things that I care a lot about, about um, food about where our food comes from, about farming, about ecology, poverty, just a lot of things that you, we have talked on a couple occasions now, one more at length a month or two ago, that really got me interested in having you on the podcast to talk with you about these things. Because on these topics, you know a lot more than I do. Uh, You spend a lot more time studying them. And so we're going to glean some wisdom from you and also find out why 
you care so deeply about those, or for the sake of this podcast, why you give a damn about food and why it's important to you know know things about it. And uh, we address poverty and wealth. We'll talk about all of that stuff. But before we get going with all of that, I need to know more about you. We know a little bit about each other. Uh, we've met each other's families. We're actually, fun little fact for everybody listening, we're part of the same church here in Nashville. So we see each other on occasion, and that's super fun, but I don't know, know you. And so I want to do that today in front of everybody listening, if that's okay with you. Of course. So um, tell me some of your story. Give me the, the who's, the what's, the when's. What are the people, places, and things that shaped you into the person you are today? Uh, just give us some of that backdrop, because I think some of that will give us some hints as to maybe why you care about the things you do today. I grew up in a really conservative Christian household in the South, even even conservative for the South. So okay. we had a family that was extremely devoted, you know, extremely devoted to God. And several of my family members were part of really radical calls to service. So one of my aunts lived in Lesotho, Africa for most of my childhood mm. and would send us stories of people living there, the simplicity of their lives. I remember something really struck me as she said, when when a Basutu family moved, they picked up their pot and their rug and they left. And that was it. Mm. And I always found that simplicity very... Uh, it wasn't a story of poverty for me. It was a story of simplicity. It was kind of uh, seductive in its in its uh, yeah l- in the lightness of being that that entailed, and then then my aunt and uncle uh, lived and worked at Skid Row, Los Angeles, and so they worked in a homeless mission from the time they were right out of Bible college. And I would get letters from my aunt and hear about what life was like there, and then later visit them. And so my life was kind of lived in the midst of this kind of radical call and response to where Jesus was showing up among the least of um, those experiencing oppression in many different kinds Mm. of ways, economic, medical, um, and oppression of of spirit. And so that was the context for growing up. And I also grew up partially on the streets of Los Angeles during the summers when I would go visit. And usually one of the men in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction or homelessness would kind of adopt me and would take me around the streets and show me things most Southern boys uh, from from rural areas where I I lived wouldn't know. Sure. And so that was my life through high school. And um, I came to college. I loved my theology classes, which I hadn't planned on taking many of, but just fell in love with um, the way um, the kingdom of God was opened to me in those, the expansiveness of it, because I came from a, a fairly traditional and a narrow uh, tradition, and, and there was a, there's a lot out there. And discovering that um, was transformative to me. But I finished college doing what I expected I was going to do when I went in, which was going to be an English professor. Okay. So I got a scholarship to go to Oxford. I was going to go there, graduate school. Um, I uh, was ready to go uh, be an English professor to prepare for, to do that. So my buddy and I, we, bef- we had a gap year. And so um, me and my best friend got into a, a 71 VW camper van and nice. we took the back roads from here to Alaska. 
sleeping oh, wow. in a van, living in state and national parks, and then down the West Coast, down Highway 1, um, for about, I don't know, five or 600 miles to L.A., where we spent several months at the Los Angeles Mission. And it, this time was different. I lived there at the Mission. I became part of the community, and I felt this call. I don't know what else to say. Mm. You know, it was like, you're not going to be an English professor. Like mm. You belong here. I just saw the gospel coming alive in ways I'd never seen in my middle class context. And I was taken. And so I reapplied to study theology. And uh, I was really interested in starting an intentional community on a farm whose mission was to serve people in homelessness and addiction who were recovering from that. And so I, I, I went to the University of Newcastle in England and studied uh, intentional communities, especially those oriented toward people on the margins, and um, lived with different intentional communities in France and England and Ireland and Scotland, and um, came back ready to go. What does an intentional community look like? You've said that a couple times now. I'm very intrigued by that idea because I think I've lived that in many yeah, ways, okay. in a lot of ways. But yeah, what is an intentional community? I think there was a revival and an interest of a way of life that was not, that, that had kinship with classical monastic communities. So, you know, think about like a monastery sure. or a convent um, where there's a rhythm of prayer, a rhythm of work, a rhythm of service. Um, radical simplicity, um, common goods. Um, but there was a hope, I think, in the modern sort of instances of, of intentional communities you see kind of springing up in the 20th, 19th, 20th century of um, s- something more open to the world with a sort of radically open mission, mm. um, with openness for married people and families to participate. So there were several of these communities scores of them that kind of popped up in uh, the 19th, 20th century. And um, some of them, like the Teze community, are pretty well known. Some of them, like the Chemin community that we spent a lot of time with in France and elsewhere, are not very known, but also, you know, there are a lot of people involved in these. And um, we went asking, okay, what kind of, what kind of, problems did you have? What kind of things did you run into? Uh, and the reason we, I was looking at intentional community was the men that I worked with in the Los Angeles mission were, um, would thrive at the mission and then they would leave, they would get their own apartment, their own job. They'd be lonely. Oh, sure. That, you know, it was a long time between church services and most of the communities, Christian communities in Los Angeles weren't really prepared for the daily needs of someone mm. coming out of addiction. Coming out of addiction and all um, sorts of stuff, yeah. So we'd see people... Relapse. Go back to the same mm. friends, go back to the same activities, and then be back at the mission or just disappear. And I thought, like, what we need people where there's who are willing to surround those coming out of addiction with daily meals and prayer and discipleship. And I was describing the Acts community in, in, in Jerusalem... Um, and I thought, well, there has to be somebody living like this. Uh, where are these communities? And I started reading about it. I was telling a pastor at the con- First Congregational Church in L.A., hey, are there communities like this? Because I need one. And she said, yeah, you should look into the Teze community. They had prayers by Teze at, at the Congregational Church there. 
And she said, you should start exploring these. So I started reading the, about these communities and discovering that they existed and wanting to begin one that served people who were suffering and recovering from drug and alcohol addiction, not simply for their sake, because I went to the mission thinking that perhaps these people on the streets need the church. And I left convinced that the church needs people coming out of addiction, needs to welcome them because the life coming through them is going to be the life that could renew the church. So you clearly had many examples, living examples of people that, again, for the sake of this podcast, gave a damn, right, in so many beautiful ways. So that there was no shortage of that. For you, was there a moment, was it more of a progression, or was there kind of a light bulb moment when you said, like, where in your life did you start saying, I've got to do this same thing? Was it when you were on the streets in LA, or was it when you went to graduate school in, you know, like, where along the way did you, like, no, this is something that I want to do as well? Yeah. Well, I was experiencing intentional community before I knew there was a word for it. Mm, there you go. Um, I was living in the mission where, which was a strange kind of accidental monastery, where the men there that I was working with had taken at least temporary vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience, right? Wow, Which are yeah. the classical monastic vows. And um, we were living together in a rhythm of prayer, meals, work, and service, and that's the life of a monastery. Exact parallels, yeah. <laughs> so I realized the kind of discipleship togetherness that was possible then, and the kind of personal confrontation with my own sinfulness that the incredibly brave self-disclosure of other people whose life had blown up, very obviously, were able to lead me into. And the kind of daily friction that happens between brothers or sisters that live close reveals who you are and also refines who you are if you let it. And so I was incredibly interested in living this life, um, not necessarily for any sense of altruism, but just a sense of like, oh, this, this is really an amazing way to follow the risen Christ in the 20th century. And it's kind of something that just was never an option, you know, to a Protestant. Sure. So, yeah, I guess I discovered it by living in one without knowing I was already there. And then wanted to know more about that. Like, who else? What else is being done along these lines? And it turns out there's quite a bit. So bridge the gap now. So between you experiencing these intentional communities overseas, France, and other places to now... What is that? What hap- What has happened between then and now? And we'll get into, after you fill that gap, we'll talk about the fact that, you know, right before our interview, uh, you know, you're taking care of goats and chickens and all sorts of things. Like, we'll, f- we'll talk about that in a minute, but like, fill, <laughs> fill that gap. So what's happened between then and now? Well, I came back to the United States just amazed at what I'd seen in Europe, um, the way Christians were living um, a renewed life. Uh, a common life um, that was so different from the the Christian life I'd grown up with, and of which I was frankly kind of done um, when I left. Sure. Um, and so I did, in fact, uh, start a farm in Jolton uh, through a ministry um, called Teen Challenge, which was a, a drug and alcohol recovery. I know, yeah. Yeah, of, for people more than teens, uh, older than teens. But And so I started a phase of their program on a farm out there, where we were, I was kind of like a, a discipleship 
mentor and accompanier, and um, we started growing food together. And just for those of you out there that aren't in the, you know, you're not a Christian or whatever, like discipleship is basically that. It's a mentor. It's somebody that walks alongside you through, walks along, a mentor that walks alongside a mentee through many different things, right? Yeah. There's more intent, you know, there's more Christian, uh, you know, aspects to it when you use the word discipleship, but just for those right. that are wondering, right. you know, it's, it's a mentor. It's somebody that comes alongside somebody, loves them, cares for them, is going to walk through them through, you know, as they're recovering or as they're growing, as they're maturing. So. Yeah. And there, there's lots of examples of this in many religious traditions yeah. and um, really all sort of intact cultures are very, um, it's not a big classroom sitting, but it's people, whether it's um, learning to be a, a craftsperson or um, learning a craft of any type or religious traditions or even the, the school system in, in England, which was um, basically four people sitting with a, an expert in their field, uh, writing papers and critiquing one another. You know, hmm. that kind of mentorship happens in all sorts of ways. It's kind of the antithesis of the mass production of personhood. And we should all be doing that, right? We should all, I think in most stages of our lives, have people in our lives that we mentor or disciple, people that we care for. We're not yeah. always like, I'm not where I want to be next year, but I'm also, I've learned a lot of things and I've gone through a lot of things that other people need and they haven't gone through them yet. So I can guide them. I can help them. I can be the person that maybe I wished I had mm-hmm. during that stage. So I'm not where I need to be for sure. You're not where, you know, you're not as developed and mature as, You'll be in five years, hopefully, right? But where you are right now, people need that. Yeah, I think it is our job. Yeah. I mean, Chinua Chibe said that when an old man dies, it's like a library burning. Hmm. And I don't want any uncopied texts going down with me. I want everything I know and am that's of value to be embedded in the lives of other people. And that takes mentorship. It's not simply a transfer of knowledge that you can get on a YouTube video, but it's human beings being with human beings, embodying the kind of wisdom and knowledge that needs to be passed on. That's awesome. I love that. I'm going to have to look up that quote and think about it some more. That's pretty deep. It's so simple. It's, it's a great word picture, but it's really profound. It's kind of terrifying. Oh, it's terrifying for <laughs> sure. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. Keep Keep going with, uh, you can take a, take, take a swig. We're drinking kombucha because we're talking about food and farming and we're both kind of hippie-ish in our eating habits, right. like kombucha is part of the daily. Right. The, the probiotics are cheering me on. They are. They are. <laughs> That's right. So where were we? Oh, the farm that you were, the Teen Challenge farm that you were. Yeah. So I'm out in the country with recovering, men recovering from addiction, um, we're growing tomatoes, we're raising goats, raising cows, we're getting bees, we're planting orchards, huge gardens, uh, chickens, if I didn't mention that. And we're discovering the care of all these things and also this peaceful setting where we're, I'm leading men on like silent retreats and it's one of the scariest things that they've ever been, these men who've been dealing drugs and running from the law, but silence is the real terror. And um, trying to discover um, who we are beneath all the noise of our um, sort of unstated ambitions. And, and so we're, we're out there doing this thing. And I'm reading books, every book in the library I can get on gardening and farming. 
and trying to just figure out what we're doing, growing our own food um, as a setting for recovery. And then I start discovering some things about what's going on in the world as a result of farming. I start reading about topsoil and its importance. And oh, by the way, we've lost half of our topsoil in America in the last hundred years. I'm like, wait, wait a minute, half of our topsoil? What happens after you lose all your topsoil? Well, the land becomes a desert and it stops producing anything. Hmm. What happens after that? Well, you move. Well, what if there's nowhere to move to? What if it's all occupied? <laughs> and so I start running into writers like Wendell Berry, who truly wrecked my life and continues to be a part of its uh, disquieting. And uh, he's a farmer and poet who writes about farming very cogently and remembers a time when farming looked a lot different than the industrial system we have. And um, in his novels and his essays and poems, he, he celebrates an agrarian lifestyle and laments the loss of that culture. And so I start, over time, start seeing farming connected to the ecological destruction of our world. And I see through the lens of farming how deep that wound is that we're actually undermining the planet's ability to care for us and other creatures mm. because of our overconsumption, that the erosion that we are meeting out upon the land is undermining its ability to yield its fruit to us. And while we need to add millions of acres a year, we're actually losing millions of acres a year due to erosion, um, that we're, we're gonna need to produce more food in the next 50 years than we've produced in our entire history as a species uh, in the past, and yet we're losing, we're losing ground. Um, the loss of biodiversity due to farming, to clearing forests, um, the carbon that's released into the atmosphere when you clear a forest, burn it, and then cut into the soil, it releases this soil-based carbon into the air. And the fossil fuels that we're using from the tractors to the fertilizers, all this is petroleum-based. And so we're expending 10 calories of fossil fuel for every to produce one calorie of food in the North Atlantic countries. And so like, this is what we mean by unsustainable. Like you can't live off fossil fuels. Like our whole food system is floating on a sinking sea of petroleum. And while it's burning up, it's warming the planet. And I'm discovering this not through like Sierra Club emails. Right. I'm discovering this through farming. Mm -hmm. And so predictably, I see this ecological crisis as a farming crisis, first of all. I mean, we have less than 2 billion farmers out on the land all over the globe, and they are the primary care physicians of the planet. And if they do their job well, the earth will thrive, we'll have a livable planet, we'll have plenty to eat, our water will remain clean, our forests will remain intact, and those things will serve us and the other creatures they were made to serve for the indefinite future. And if those farmers are not allowed or pressed into a kind of farming that's not the nurture, not the kind of caregiving that the idea and ideal of agrarian farming is, but rather taking from the land in order to produce a form of mining rather than a form of nurture, then we are going to undermine our capacity to feed ourselves and to 
allow the earth to continue to support life in its abundance as we know it. And so while farming, the industrial farming system as we know it is a huge, like, and I think the biggest problem ecologically, which means period, the biggest problem that we're facing as a species Mm. um, and as a, as a planet of species, um, it could also be the answer. And I think it is the answer. Like Mm. good farming is the answer to bad farming. And it's the answer to all the ecological problems practically um, that we're facing today. Well, first of all, you probably just scared the shit out of everyone listening. (laughs) Because that sounds, it's all, I mean, it all makes sense. That resonates with me and what I know about the foods that we're eating and how it's like, that resonates with everything that I've ever seen. And again, I'm looking to you for help. I see you as the expert here, but it's, it's still scary. Like that's scary. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a scary picture that you just painted. So what do we, before I ask, before, like there's so many questions, but I don't want to draw this out. Like people need to, what I'm going to ask at the end is for some resources and some help for people that want to continue learning about this. I hope that a few people listening will say, I want to take this more seriously. Like we need to get into farming or whatever. Like I I want some people to take this very seriously, whether that's them saying, I want to be a farmer or some people saying, I need to change what I'm eating and how I'm eating and all of that. I want to see all of that happen. Before we get to some solutions and how we can make it through this and survive and not crush our planet in the process, of all the farming that's being done right now on planet Earth, what is the percentage that is being done by farmers who care, being done right, and what is the percentage of farming that is being done poorly? Whether that's ignorance on the part of the farmer or they're knowingly. And for for example, I was just watching this, um, there's this British documentarian, Benjamin Zand. Um, he works for the BBC. And he was doing this thing in Guatemala and I lived there for 10 years. I have a very special place. That's what caught my eye about this one piece that he did. And he visited this community where they were known all over Guatemala and all over Central America for what they called, I think they call them like God's giant carrots or something. So it was this place that was known for producing these humongous, mm-hmm. I mean, they're bigger than my forearm. Like yeah. they're, they're, they're pulling these carrots up and they're huge. They're massive. And the local like uh, pastor, he had talked about how this was a miracle because they were they were they were not doing well. They were very mm-hmm. they were impoverished as a and now because of these carrots, uh, they're able to sell them. They have they have people come from all over the country wanting to buy them for their markets and for their supermarkets. So, so they're now they're a thriving community because of these mm-hmm. giant carrots and they're everywhere. But then Benjamin, he's like, I'm I don't I, that that can't be the whole story. Like this is a mm-hmm. miracle from God and that's it. So then he goes and visits the farmers and lo and behold, they're spraying all this shit all over him. Hmm. And the farmers were even like, on the one hand, he was saying it was like, it was, it was like he knew, but he didn't know. And he didn't know how he, how he thought of it. And this is the guy farming. He's the guy that's mm-hmm. built or growing them. On the one hand, he was like, no, this is a miracle, right? They, they told us it was a miracle. But then he, but then he said, what are you spraying them? And he goes, if you didn't spray that on them, would they grow to be this size? And he's like, oh no, they're, they're this size because of what I'm spraying on them. And it's all these chemicals. And so then he goes and takes the findings back to the pastor. And the pastor's like, no, this is a miracle. Stop mm-hmm. talking about it. Stop asking about this. It's a miracle. So anyway, that's something that's like recently, I just saw it the other night and I'm sitting there thinking, oh my word, like they're, po- they're literally poisoning themselves to keep up this facade of uh-huh. God's, you know, giant carrots. Mm-hmm. So what is the percentage of, if, if you could even put a number on it, of like farming that's being done well and farming that's not being done well? 
Yeah. The FAO did put a number on it. The Food and Agriculture Organization from the UN did a study. And the question was, can agroecology feed the world? Agroecology is a phrase, uh, an African farmer named Pierre Rabhi um, from Algeria and, and then France used to describe farming that heals the earth rather than farming that hurts the earth. Um, and that can look like a lot of different things, but it measures health, the health of the land and the sure. health of the people. And so when asking this question, the FAO determined that 70% of the world's food that's eaten is produced by agroecology farmers, agroecological farmers. Um, and what's tremendous is that they, they're in control of only 30% of the land. 70% are in charge of 30% of the land. So 70% of the world's food comes off of 30%, 30% of the world. Of the, okay. And that land is managed agroecologically. Whereas the industrial food system controls 70% of the world's land, it produces only 30% of the world's food. Because the earth is not healthy? Because the reason that it's so low is that when you're a small farmer, you can plant multiple crops. Um, you can take plants and plant between other crops. Like sure. traditionally in, in Asia and in North America, um, primary farmers there would plant corn, but they would plant squash on the ground beneath them. And they would plant beans around the corn, which would both fertilize the corn and crawl up the bean pole. They would use the stalk of the corn as a bean pole. Oh, and so you have this, what's called a three sisters guild, where you have three yields over a land that if it were managed industrially would only be corn because there's no combine that can go through a field of three sisters and separate all three of those. Sure. That's not how the machinery works. And so you will often see open fields. If you go through you know, the Northwest, you'll see corn and then the rest of the year there's nothing on it. And so it's not producing anything, and there's no interplanting, and there's no succession planting, which is to say after a crop comes out, you put something else in. There's no cover crop, which is a crop that's used just to feed the soil in the off-season uh, when the cash crop has come out. So all of those intensive farming methods that are possible on small acreage by knowledgeable farmers are not possible in the industrial food system where you are using large machinery to plant and harvest that do not accommodate that kind of intensive agriculture. And so it turns out that the, at the smaller a farm gets, the more efficient it gets at producing food. Um, whereas a small farm is um, up to 10 times as efficient as a, as a large farm. And then if you get a tiny farm, it's like 50 times more efficient because mm. of this kind of techniques that can be done on very small scales. So it turns out if you want to feed the world, let's not go large-scale industrial because sure. that doesn't work. It's yeah. terribly inefficient and mm. we're losing biodiversity, we're losing soil, and we're losing farmers because they're entering a debt cycle to service this machinery and these inputs that the prices they're getting for their crops cannot accommodate. And they're spiraling down through a debt spiral and out of farming into the overcrowded cities. And, and so we see the, the, the sort of invention of the megacity as farmers are getting funneled off the land due to this debt cycle. And so industrial farming is not going to feed, the, it doesn't presently feed most of the world and is not really set up 
for the success of anything except for the corporations that benefit from it. The damage that we're doing to the earth, can it be reversed? Yes. How? So, and, what, and what would need to happen? Well, I think what needs to happen first is people everywhere need to get curious about the story of their food. Sure. That's good. There is a mystery happening right under everybody's noses. Yeah. The food we put into our bodies every day has a story that we don't bother to ask. And it's kind of extraordinary that we may be the first people to have no clue where our food comes from, have no connection to the the lives, the people, and the lands that are used and often abused for our benefit, from the undocumented workers that are picking our tomatoes in the fields of Immokalee, to the Chinese who are hand-pollinating apples because all the bees have died from the toxic land and wow. sprays that they've used, um, and the journeys of, you know, that average 1,400 miles for every bite of food that we bring to our tables in America. Um, those are made invisible because if we knew what was behind them, if we knew the misery of the animals that come out of these factory farms, we would be slow to eat them and maybe we wouldn't eat them at all. And so this is a story that has been intentionally hidden from us. And I, I hope people get curious about that story. Where did my food come from? Was the land cared for or abused for my benefit? Were animals or people cared for or abused for my benefit? And what would it look like if it were different? And so um, I think the first thing is we need to wake up and realize that the food, the story of the food that we're connected to is a part of the story of the dying of the earth. And if we don't wake up to it, we're not going to know what to do in order to reverse that. Not just sort of wide-scale biological collapse, but also the misery of our neighbors um, against whom a lot of demagoguery has been leveled um, without any reference to the fact that due to the kind of trade rules that we've set up between the United States and Mexico, um, we've ruined their agriculture mm. and dumped our cheap subsidized American corn on Mexican markets and have driven Mexican farmers out of business and to our borders because they, they're no longer able to stay on the land. And so within 10 years of NAFTA coming into effect, over a million and a half Mexican farmers had lost their ability to, to grow on their land. And they come to our fields, they come to the factories along our borders, and they work there. And so they're here because we forced them to be here. Um, and so that's, that's a food story. Like a lot of the, the talk around the immigration crisis doesn't reference this, but this is an agricultural story and it has an agricultural cure, um, among other things that need to happen. So I hope people get curious about the food story because it's incredibly interesting and it's incredibly important. The problem, and I agree with you, the problem with that is that that takes work and... I'm trying more and more these days to give people the benefit of the doubt, um, but they don't care. Just generally, if it's like my life's work is going to be learning different and better ways of helping people give a damn, helping people realize that even though there's obstacles in the way of figuring this, that, or the other out, it's worth it. Keep mm -hmm. going. Because by and large, if we have one obstacle or two obstacles, if maybe if we get to the third obstacle in the way of getting where we think we need to go, we quit. Mm -hmm. 
Netflix is more appealing or, you know, whatever. There's a million different things that we quit to, that we resort to. It's one thing to say, get curious, but that's, it takes work. How, I mean, how long have you been studying this stuff to get to where you are? And not that everybody's going to get there and they don't need to. If they got a, a hundredth of what you know, that's a lot of getting curious and they'll know a lot more than they did before. And it should, it can and should change the way they live their lives. But I'm just, I guess I'm trying to, what's even the first step? Because I know it's getting curious. I know it's wanting to know the story of their food. But I just see so many people, as my family and I have taken steps toward, you know, trying to, and this is a very complex issue and there's no right or wrong way to do it, I think. But as we've gone, you know, vegetarian and then almost vegan and we're trying to cut things out and we try to buy as much organic as we can. We try to put, try to put really good things in our bodies as we've talked to these things with our family and our friends, they're like, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And it seems like the most common answer for when people say, I, I could never do that, it comes back to, well, why couldn't you do it? Because it tastes too good. That's literally the answer is like, they will not pursue something that, that I just proved to them is better for the earth and for, and for their bodies because it doesn't taste as good or they don't think it tastes as good or they can't give up X, Y, or Z. And that's how most of our conversations have gone is... Um, I don't, I don't try to get people to not eat meat. That's not my goal. If people ask why we don't eat meat and never will probably, like I tell them why. And then they, most of the time will say, but bacon, but this, but that. And so that's, that they resort to, it's not going to feel good to not do that thing. Even though you just convinced me that it's not good, that I might want to try this out because it's not good. The amount of meat that we consume, we've been talking about vegetables. We haven't even gotten into, Mm -hmm. you know, the meat industry. And they literally shut the conversation down with, but, it, but bacon, right? <laughs> right? That's literally where it goes. And so I, I get it, what you're saying about the get curious, but I'm like, but it doesn't seem like people are going to get curious. And what if they don't get curious in time? Then there, there will come a time, right? When it's too late, maybe? I don't know. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, it's already too late for a lot of the species that have died. It's sure. Ex- gone extinct. It's a lot it's already too late for many of the farmers who lost their land and committed suicide. So we're in the middle of a great dying. Um, and so we're not gonna see it. Plane is going to hit the ground and, and how we land, um, is kind of, is going to be very important for a lot of people and a lot of Mm. other species. I think what's really important, Nick, is that as people are, you know, flying in this very luxurious plane that we call first world culture, with their headphones on and their DVDs going full blast. Um, There's something going on outside the window. And if watching that DVD and keeping those Bose headphones on is more important to people than actually start looking out the window Mm. and seeing the mountain range come into view, I mean, what's going to happen? Giving a damn is not about how you feel. It's about what you do with your body. Yep. And if you're not willing to do something hard to address the greatest challenge that humans have ever faced, we will get what we deserve, right? We're going to get what's coming. It's only if we wake up, unplug from the kind of matrix that we've been living in where food is easy, food is free. The scientists are going to figure out the answer to all the problems from our consumptive excess, and we can just sit back and enjoy the ride, man, there's not much of a future for us. Mm. Like, it's time to wake up. And so this is going to be hard work. 
And I think it's important, you know, not to just end this conversation by saying, go to a farmer's market, you know? Sure. There's, there's your solution yeah. fixed, you know? Um, this will require a lot of you if you want to respond in a way that's helpful at all. Um, so let's go there then. Let's spend a few minutes. I don't want to drag this out. I could talk to you forever about this. But for the sake of everyone listening, let's, um, let's talk about what, what is the solution then beyond getting curious. So we've gotten curious, right? Let's just say people are now curious. I don't want to keep my headphones on to use your, your word picture. Like I want to look out the window. I want to see what's coming. Let's see if we can make the landing softer than it would be if we weren't paying attention, right? So what does that look like? You just said it's not, the answer isn't just go to your farmer's market and say, whoops, I did my part. You know, what can we do? For everybody listening here, you know, mostly probably living in some sort of a city or at least, a, you know, fairly urban. There's some people that are listening that live out kind of where you grew mm-hmm. up, but it's a lot of people that live in. So what can we do? Is the answer to shop at Whole Foods more? Is the answer to um, start farming in our backyard? Is it to change our eating habits? What, what, what would you beg us to do with the knowledge you have of our current state of, you know, the ecological state of the world? What would you beg us to do? Let me just say that a lot of people will start becoming aware of this, these issues through documentaries like Food Inc. or Fresh or um, other documentaries like Tomorrow, um, which sort of raise awareness and give people like a picture of what's going on, Um, both the kind of human cost, the animal cost, um, the ecological cost that is being demanded from our industrial system of our world. And these are pictures that people aren't generally allowed to see, and it's really helpful to see them. So I think that's often a jolt for people. Like, sure. oh, I didn't know that was being done for my benefit. I didn't know that tasty bacon required that kind of misery of both Smithfield workers and Smithfield hogs. Um, so the kind of awakening you know, might begin there. It's hard, it's hard to um, orchestrate somebody's awakening. People might... Sure. Yeah. People might enter in different ways. Um, going to a farmer's market and, and hearing the stories from the farmers themselves about the food they grow, visiting farms, this can be really important. Um, I think it's really important to have a wide view of what we're facing as humans. Um, I think the convenience that you talked about being such a an obstacle, one of the the documentaries that I'm referencing fresh begins with this checkout line and uh, George Naylor saying, narrating and saying, I once had a Lebanese, uh, I believe it was Lebanese, um, college roommate that said, George, Americans fear only one thing and that's inconvenience, mm. right? And as long as we are not that's the truth. willing to be inconvenienced, yep. Yep. as long as we demand easy, then... I don't see a way out of this. I mean, let's do something really hard because all things in life that are worth doing are really hard. Really hard. Let's determine that marriage and love and faithfulness to the earth, faithfulness to our neighbor is probably going to be really hard and let's decide to do it, Mm. you know, and let's sort of break out of the prison of our push button culture and say, actually... There are ways of doing this that are better and they're harder and that's okay. So kind of getting your mind steeled against the fact that the things in life we're doing are going to be difficult. 
gardening is a really hard way to get your food. There's much easier ways, but not more satisfying ways to get your food. And so I think the world that we're looking at, the healthy world ahead of us, is full of genuine pleasure, um, but not as full of conveniences. Um, And that might be okay. That might be a better world. I like that. I mean, it all comes down to that convenience versus inconvenience. And we, we, we have it all at, at our fingertips. And if it's the least bit difficult to get there, we usually give up. Um, it's a great place to start. So let's end, let's start landing the plane with what are you doing now? So all that you, you spent years studying all over the world, farming, studying from farmers, you know, getting healthy in excess of Wendell Berry, and you got all this stuff going on, right? So what have you how have you seen fit, at least for this part of your life, this stage of your life, to manifest all of that? What are you doing now to help people, to be a mentor or a disciple, to kind of get, get this word out and get people thinking about it? Well, one of the things, and it kind of touches your last question that I usually introduce people to on is Wendell Berry, who I believe is a prophet of our so time. So good. Yeah. And there's a book called Art of the Commonplace, which is a collection of his essays, which is a really great place to start. And there's a novel, uh, if, you, if you like novels, called Jaber Crow, which is my favorite book, period. And um, that really will give people an opportunity to fall in love with a different way of life. And I usually tell people, um, I could give you really depressing statistics, which I have done today. Um, <laughs> but what you really need to do is fall in love. Because the things that we save are usually the things that we love, not the things that we fear losing, but the things that we love and don't, and don't want to lose for that reason. And so we really need a different love. And growing up in a Christian tradition that talked about love of God and love of neighbor, there's a whole third love that the Bible I was raised with talks about subtly, but it's the love of the earth. Mm. It is what the first job that Hebrew scriptures tell us that humans were given was to tend and care for God's paradise. And this is it. This is our, this is God's paradise. Yeah. And so to reconnect with that um, is one of my goals for people that I get an opportunity to speak to. So I've been teaching for the last 10 years environmental justice, which studies not just what's going on with the environment, but who tends to pay for the ecological destruction and who benefits from it. So a picture of that would be when I visited Soweto in uh, South Africa, uh, there's a coal fire plant that powered the white homes of Johannesburg. And the prevailing wind took the ash from this plant and dumped it on the shanty towns of Soweto. And these were people who did not have electricity. So they got dumped on. They got the residue of the electricity, <laughs> right. but didn't have electricity right. itself. Right. So that's kind of a really strong and terrible example of an environmental injustice, mm. is that the poor did not get the benefits of this ecological destruction. Um, they only reaped the toxic overburden, right? And so usually the poor are downwind or downstream from some toxic pipe from our industrial society and environmental justice seeks to kind of address that and ask those questions. So I've been teaching that for the last 10 years as a part of the Center for Social Justice here at Trevecca. And what we do is visit different places, sometimes around the world. Um, 
in Africa and Asia and learn from farmers and talk to them about ways in which um, they are preserving the land and then share those stories with others around the world, um, sometimes through videos and sometimes through visiting and storytelling. We've started a farm here at Treveca. Um, it was inspired by the fact we live in a food desert, so mm-hmm. our neighbors can't reach affordable, nutritious food, and and they they make well below the poverty level. This is the third uh, poorest zip code um, in our state. Um, and so we thought, why not create a food oasis in the middle of a food desert? Um, let's show what can be done in the city. And so we did that here on campus. We are in the process of mm. doing that. We have a 100-tree orchard in the middle of the city. We can see skyscrapers and hold goats. We've got 23 of them. We have 60 chickens. We have hogs. We have bees, um, an aquaponic system where we raise tilapia and plants together, a greenhouse, an urban vegetable garden, and and we raise mushrooms. And so we just want to figure out how to do everything that can be done on a shoestring budget using things that are generally thrown away. So our gardens are practically free. We use wood chips that are thrown away by arborists. They dump here. Um, they have to pay otherwise and they dump their chips here. We mix that with animal manures or food residue from the cafeteria, and we make amazing soil, and we grow plants for less than a penny a piece. And we show people through farm uh, camps, um, through our environmental justice program for undergraduates, through visits from schools like field trips and things from elementary, middle, and high schools, um, what we can do in the city And then we've also um, helped neighbors and schools create their own gardens around around, uh, South Nashville. And so uh, those are ways in which we're trying to demonstrate of what's possible to grow your own food in the city and do so in a way that heals the earth and communities. I love it. I love that. Um, This talk has, has terrified me. And also giving me a lot of hope. Um, I know we didn't get into you know tons of depth. There's a lot more. I mean, there's a lot more we could talk yeah. about. Um, and I hope that you and I can do that offline more uh, because this is something that I'm really interested in. I think, as you just stated, it is if if we fail in this issue, there's no earth left to be able to fix. Other issues can keep going. Yeah, and and it sucks that they keep going, but yeah. they don't destroy the earth. Right. This one destroys the earth. If we don't right. take care of it, we can't figure anything else out because there's no longer a place to be yes. and exist. Right. So that's way. terrifying and also just hopeful. I do hope that, you know, of the hundreds and thousands of people that listen to this podcast, that a few will take your words seriously. I really do. Um, maybe we'll see some farmers come out of this or people that are just that just get curious. Um, and that's a good place to start. Um, before we close. I have a question that I ask every guest. This is the same. Qu- I ask the same question for every guest. Um, someday, Jason, you're going to die. Uh, hopefully, it's many, many, many years from now. Many farms and many, uh, you know, students later and many uh, f- uh, gardens later. But you're going to die, and for some odd reason, I've been asked to give your eulogy. The hundreds and thousands of people that have been affected by the good that you've done in your life are there to honor and celebrate and mourn your life. What do you hope that I would say on that day about your life and legacy? So I think one word that would honor me greatly is 
that when Jason died, none of the books of his life burned uncopied in the lives of another. All of them were transcribed and live on in the lives of others. I hope nothing good that was given to me, I will take to my grave. Mm, you gave it away. What was that quote again? The one you said earlier, because it ties into what you just said, and I, I loved it, and I want people to get it. As we close, that's a great way to close. Yeah. When an old man dies, it's like a library burning. And I just hope that when my library burns, that copies are written everywhere, mm. and there will be no loss of love and wisdom. Mm. That's great. That's great. Jason Adkins, farmer, professor, all-around badass human that cared enough to get curious. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. This was super fun. Thanks for having me. It's been good talking. Friends, I'll be honest. I was bothered after recording this interview. Not at Jason, at me, at us, at the world. I'm bothered that we aren't taking care of this planet. I'm bothered that so many humans just don't give a shit. Friends, we must do better. We must do more. We are all in this together. It's precisely why I named this podcast, Let's Give a Damn, and not, hey you, you should go give a damn. These are our issues to work on, our problems to fix. So let's do it. Per usual, show notes for this episode and all the rest can be found at podcast.letsgiveadam.com. And more than other episodes, I would love to hear your feedback, love to hear your thoughts. So hit me up at hello at nicklapara.com or at nicklapara or at letsgiveadam everywhere on social media. Truly, I would love to hear your feedback. We've got lots of discussing and acting to do. We have an exciting episode next week with Ruthie Lindsay. Can't wait to share it with you. Same day, same time next week. Much love to you and yours. Bye for now.